Hello, everybody. Dr. Rick Wallace here dropping in on you. I hope everybody's having an unbelievable week. Uh, uh, while some who stream love to wait for a certain amount of people to come in, um, what I do is I talk to those who are here. And as people come in, they can catch up and they can catch the beginning on the replay. I I'm not one big for just sitting around and doing all of that because what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up 99.9% uh, .9 of what I stream uh, indefinitely uh, for people to come on. Hey, uh, Tamika, uh, we're doing okay. We're still recovering from uh, what went on with the winter storm. We still haven't gotten a permanent resolution to our burst pipes. We're doing okay um we have running water because i repaired them temporarily but uh we're hoping to get a permanent fix soon uh had some water damage i had friends who fared a whole lot worse so we're good um looking forward to talking to you uh sometime soon uh so reach out and let me know what what's going on and when we can talk uh, but what I want to do is I wanted to sit down and I wanted to talk to you about something that popped up on my radar. Uh, believe it was, let me see, I have it right here. Yesterday or the day before. Um, and it was Samaria Rice, who is the mother of um, Tamir Rice who was killed in 2014 by police officers less than five seconds after they pulled up on him, literally pulled up on him, immediately bum rushed him and shot him. Uh, those of you who saw the footage, it's crazy. He's a he was a 12 or 13 year old kid uh, playing with a play gun at a park by himself. Someone called it in, they bum rushed him and Less than 10 seconds later, he was dead. Um, so much happened in that year. This is right after Mike Brown. Um, and we know that there's been some rifts going on between Mike Brown, Mike Brown Sr. and Black, the Black, Black Lives Matter organization. Um, and I talked about that briefly. And the reason I'm bringing this to you is because I wanna give context and clarity to what Samaria Rice is saying, because I know how uh, mainstream is going to play this. I know how uh, those under the gun and in her crosshairs are going to play this. The Ben Crumps, uh, the Lee Merritts, uh, the Tamika Mallory's are going to play this. And I have called on some of my uh, peers and colleagues, people I hold dear and have a great deal of respect for. Uh, to stand in the gap on her behalf and give her a voice as well as give her a level of color uh, covering. Not everybody is a spokesperson, but everybody should have a right to speak. And so I don't want what happened to Mike Brown Sr. to happen to her. What happened to Mike Brown Sr. is he got frustrated. He called them out on a bunch of questionable issues. Then he demanded $20 million of all of the millions and millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that they've reared since the death of his son, which primarily is what thrust them into the, to the spotlight. They usurped the on the grounds movement that took place in Ferguson 
uh, subsequent to the murder of Mike Brown by Darren Wilson. Uh, Black Lives Matter was a hashtag before that. It was not an organization. It was just something that had gained some popularity. They took that hashtag, took funding from George Soros, created a PR branding campaign, went into Ferguson and literally took the gra took credit for the grass rounds move, gr grassroots movement, took credit for the work that was being done like by people like Neota Urer, uh, Darren Seals and others. Um, subsequent at the same time, Darren Seals was calling him out. Neota Urer was calling him out. Darren Seals ends up dead. Subsequent to Darren Seals' death, five other prominent uh, on the boots on the ground activists in that area who were calling out Black Lives Matter ended up dead in similar ways to Darren Seals, uh, i.e. being shot, being set on fire, things of that nature. Um, since then, there's been an ongoing war being waged predominantly underneath the surface because they have the money they can suppress so much, but they've been called to the mat endlessly by those who know the truth and those who can wear. And the thing is, you know, who's going to argue with an idea or a concept that says black lives matter. That's not the argument being put forth here. The argument isn't that black lives don't matter. The argument is that the organization that literally built its its momentum, its foundation and set up its nonprofit and the ability to literally drain money out of the grassroots movement in, in, in Ferguson in the St. Louis area and then all over the place was thrust by the energy that came from the murder of a black man, Mike Brown. And it was supposed to be about our frustration of young black males dying at the hand of rogue cops. It was supposed to be about standing up and providing a force to be reckoned with in dealing with rogue cops as it pertains to the killing of young black men. Yet, when you go to the site of Black Lives Matter, starting with them, um, starting with them, you go to Black Lives Matter, it's hard to find the mention of black man in the traditional sense. It's hard to find a mention of black family in the traditional sense. What you will find is a lot of rhetoric that is aimed towards the support and the liberation and freedoms of the LGBTQ community uh, and feminist groups um, that are out there, but nothing that says, hey, look, we literally cut our teeth on fighting for the rights of young black men to be able to walk in their communities and neighborhoods without being harassed and killed by white police officers. There's nothing there for that. It's immediately clear where they've shifted. They've literally drained funds from a fight that they did not participate in. They drained funds from a, a, a movement and a cause that they had no commitment to and that they've been called on it and they've, they've, they've used the weight of their financial resources to push back and to make people seem crazy, to make people seem jealous, to make people seem like they're just simply hating on them. Uh, they were, I mean, the words of Brittany, um, what's Brittany's name? But 
her words and the words of others had a direct bearing on what happened to Darren Seals. And for that reason alone, I take this fight personally because it says that we can come in and take from you what you built and then we can sit up and subliminally suggest retaliation for your resistance to our usurping your movement. That we're playing as dirty as any white white group we've ever seen before. We're playing the game that way. Why? Because this is how we're eating now. This, you know, and I think what set off Tamir's mom, Samaria Rice, when she said this, is she saw Tamika Mallory at the Grammys. And Tamika Mallory was speaking about women's empowerment again. Now, all of this, all these people have names and, and platforms and voices because of Mike Brown's death. Let's let's be clear about that. That was one of the most devastating years for black men, not because more black men died than any other time before. Look, I've been tracing this all the way back since 1990 with a guy by the name of um, Scott Sherhart, who killed a young black man named Byron Gillum uh, in the third water area of Houston. And so it's been hurting me, but it was in 2009, in January 2009, that uh, Oscar Grant was killed at Fruitville. And everything changed for me because that's the first time I ever saw it recorded. Before then, it was what I read. It was a report in the newspaper. It was something I heard on television with, with, with any type of video totally uh, eliminated from the equation. Oscar Grant's death was the first one that had a visual. And I've never been able to shake it. And that's the one that always sets with me. But the thing is, that's always been it. But for 2014, we had Eric, we had Eric Garner. We had Mike Brown. We had Tamir Rice. We had uh, just like, and, and it was happening like uh, John Crawford in Walmart. It was just so much going on in this little tight span of 2014. And it was a galvanizing that I've never seen before. I was looking at what was taking place in Ferguson. And I'm saying, this is different. This is different. This isn't just anger. This is resolve. And see, it's one thing to have anger, but it's another thing to have anger coupled with resolve. And that's what I was seeing. And so I started connecting with people in the Ferguson area because I wanted to lend whatever I had to something that I could see and I believed in and I'm looking at it, but then I start to see reports of the inactive, pretending to be engaged and active and using resources to create PR campaigns behind a grassroots movement that wasn't really concerned with who they whose name was doing what or who was responsible for what, it was a community. And what was scary about this movement is it had something that no movement in the history of America standing up to fight had. It had a leaderless, headless force. It wasn't one person you were gonna take out and stop it. 
but they have a response to it that most people don't understand. When you're playing games at a certain level, you got to understand how they play the game. They couldn't take out a leader because it wasn't one person. It was a heart of a community that had come to its its wits end with a problem that it saw no end to and just said, if we're going to die, we might as well die right here. There's something about a resolve that says, I'm willing to go the distance that scares people. See, that's something that I learned, that it, it, it it's not the level of violence. It's not what you're willing to do. It's how far you're willing to go. It's the distance you are prepared to go that's going to determine how far you get, not how violent you can become, but how far you're willing to go. Because see, you can get violent as you want to, but when people start striking back, striking back with weapons you ain't never seen before and, and, and pulling up in tanks and doing, what are you going to do then? Man, it's nothing. I used to sit up and I used to watch this back in the 70s and the 80s when all this stuff was going on in China and Hong Kong and all this Tiananmen Square and all this stuff where you had people that are sitting up fighting tanks with rocks. And I'm like, what kind of resolve do you have to have to say I'm going to fight a tank with a rock? It's a no win. It's a no win proposition, but it is. That's something I had to, I had to understand what was behind. See, if I die and they kill me with that tank and all I had was a rock and the world sees it, it writes a narrative that cannot be argued, that cannot be debated. You've got to answer why you had to use a tank to stop a man with a rock. But anyway, what upset Samaria Rice is, you got to keep in mind that her issue with Ben Crump is intimate in the fact that Crump at one point represented her uh, when she was fighting for justice for Tamir. And she asked that he be removed from her team. She saw something way back then that said, he's not about justice. He's about the bag. And I've been telling people that forever. Crump is about the bag. Whether you go back and you look at what happened uh, with, what is his name? I can't think of his name right now. But the guy uh, in South Carolina, the police shot while he was running away, shot him in the back. We settling, but we're not getting justice. So what happens when you are just out to get the bag? Yes. You're going to get a poor family more money than they've ever seen in their lifetime. And it's probably going to quiet them down. What happened is what she's saying, what I'm saying, and what other people, <coughs> excuse me, and I'm hoping to get Nyota on here so she can really uh, bring it, because she was in the middle of all this. But what I'm saying is, Ben Crump has been used to be a buffer, much in the way the young Dr. Martin Luther King before 1967 was used. Give him a dream. Let him talk about a dream. Let him talk about integration. Let him talk about anything except 
economic equity. They don't talk about anything except reparations. It was after he decided that integration wasn't going to work. It was when he. It was after he told um, Harold Belafonte in the hotel room that I think that we're going to win integration. I think that we're going to be integrated, but I think I've integrated my people into a burning house. It's it's something going on that I can't come to grips with and reconcile. And it was after that he started to talk about economic empowerment. He started to tell that we're coming back to Washington, but this time we're coming back to get our check. We're coming back for reparations. We're coming back for financial empowerment, financial access, economic access. And within a year he was dead. And then we find out in 1999 in in the uh, King versus the U, U. uh, U.S. government, that the U.S. government was not only uh, complicit in his killing, they were directly involved. It was them that set it in motion. They caused it. They were behind it. They forced it. This has actually been proven. This is a U.S. government that plays the game that way. So this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. What we're looking at is young black men are dying. Young black men are dying. And you finally got a movement, a thrust. They send in this group. It becomes a rally cry. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. The PR campaign was intense, but if you're not aware of how uh, propaganda works and how the media is used, you, it, it goes right by you because so you're emotionally involved and what you're seeing is black death and you're seeing somebody say black lives matter. Hell yeah, black lives matter, but you're not realizing they're building a machine. They're building something that's literally becoming magnetic and it's redirecting the energy. It's redirecting the focus. It stopped being about Ferguson. It stopped being about Mike Brown and it became about Black Lives Matter. But in what way? How are we directing our resources to deal with the enigmatic issues that are plaguing black people in the community? How can it be refocused on the LGBTQ issues and feminist issues when it was built on the death of a black man? How can that happen? And what Samaria Rice is saying is I peeped your game. I might not be as eloquent as you when you speak before the cameras, but game recognize game and I see what you're doing and you're using the black the blood of black men to do it. And my call to blacks in positions in which they have a voice whether it be something on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, or you have your own site or you have your own organization. If you know what's going on and you're really truly about black unity, you're really truly 
about black liberation and black empowerment, if you're really truly about doing something that changes what we're seeing in this world and truly ignites and empowers a black revolution, then you've got to stand up for this woman and you've got to speak truth to power. You've got to be willing to stand up and take some of the blows that are going to be aimed at her so that she can still be true and honest to herself. My thing is, if you look at Ben Crump, tell me any case that he's been involved with where he settled that the cop involved was actually convicted. Now, again, he's got a $27 million settlement for the family of George Floyd. Good for that family. Uh, I wish they can get $100 million. But he made the settlement before the trial was over. There are le legal ramifications. There are social ramifications. There are political ramifications. The game is being played. It's, a, it, it's no coincidence that the city of Minneapolis wanted to settle that before the, before the trial was over. How many officers were let off the hook because the settlement stopped the family from pushing or the settlement was attached to a non-disclosure agreement that bound them from talking about specifically about the facts or speaking in any way ill or negatively towards the city. Oh, those non-disclosure agreements are common in those settlements. And what we have to understand is once the family has been bound, once the once the family has been bound to not speak, there's no firsthand connectivity. There's no social uh, connectivity. There is no direct emotional connectivity for the masses to be connected to the issue. Now it's simply another black man died. There's nobody saying, I am not giving up. There's nobody saying, I'm going to fight for my brother. I'm going to fight for my son. I'm going to fight for my father. There's nobody saying that. Why? They've been bound, in other words, paid to back down. Now, it's not delivered that way, but that's what it is. When you have a non-disclosure and the city's rushing this, they don't want the bad publicity for a number of different reasons. You got politicians who are going to be impacted by how this thing is perceived to have been settled. So when you sit up and say, well, the family got 27 million, everybody's good now. But what you don't understand is you when you consistently do this, this is what happened. You now have successfully put a price tag on blacks on the on the head of black lives. You put a price tag on a black life, a black male life. Here's the thing. Does the 27 million drive up the price tag temporarily? Because I doubt that's going to be the norm. The norm is going to be somewhere around three to five to six million dollars. Now, that's a price tag you put on a black life. Now, to some who don't understand the dynamic of this, you think the average black family t collectively is not going to make five million over the course of their lives. So it seems to be 
okay, a fair exchange. There's no fair exchange because nobody can put a price tag on the trauma of having someone snatched from you before that time in such a traumatic and dramatic fashion. Nobody's looking at the long-term implications of that negative experience and how it's going to play out. I can tell you from the research I've done that the children involved are going to have experiences that are directly associated with what's known as adverse childhood experiences. They're going to have traumas that play out and it's going to deal with them in ways that we haven't even considered. Adverse childhood experiences impacts health outcomes over the course of the person's life, not just over a short period of time, not just while they're currently and directly engaged in it. 30 years from now, they will still be experiencing health outcomes based off of that experience, especially when it's not dealt with and they are not provided with the proper outlet through which to cope and deal with it. Adverse childhood experiences, anything from death and loss, physical, emotional abuse, parents divorcing and separating, uh, 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 someone in the family, a parent addicted to drugs, seeing someone killed, all of these different things that are highly uh, frequent in inner city communities. Those advert for each one of those adverse experiences, you get a point. Once a child has four points, which is almost every kid in the inner city, they are 12 times more likely to <clears throat> attempt suicide. They're three times more likely to develop diabetes. They're four times more likely to develop coronary heart disease. I can go on down the line of how this impacts and how it's inter interconnected. I can talk about the epigenetic influence of it. Why? Because I've spent the last 20 plus years learning and dealing and understanding this. It's so much more than a kid being shot in the street. It is the long-term implications of how we process that, that we cannot be paid for. There's no price tag that you can put on it. But they're putting a price tag on it. And what was and what you've got to understand is the way that we are being portrayed in the media on a general scale animalizes us, criminalizes us, marginalizes us. And so what happens is when someone looks and says, well, shit, that animal didn't, didn't deserve, he was doing this, he was doing that. The crazy thing is George Floyd died for passing off what was suspected to be a, a counterfeit $20 bill, which turned out to be a real $20 bill, and he died for it. Talk about his past, bring up what you want to about his past, but at the end of the day, he died for something he did not do. You can't kill a person and then turn around and say, well, he didn't do that, but he did this. 10 years ago. And even that doesn't justify his death. But we consistently are marginalized and criminalized, animalized, and, and, and sexualized and objectified in the media so that we have a different view of ourselves and the world has a different view of us. So when a family that is barely making ends meet gets a $7 million settlement, people are saying they got more than what they deserve. You've now put a value on a price of a price tag on the head of a black life. Now, do I think that black should, families should be paid when cops go rogue and kill for no reason? Absolutely. Do I think Blacks should be paid when they're wrongfully convicted and spend time in prison? 
Absolutely. But that's not the end game. The end game has to be a fight that levels the playing field so that we are not having to get paid all the time. Hell, if you don't have the right type of healing, if you don't have the right type of mindset, if you don't have an understanding of black group economics, black unity, black community, you get paid. That money actually becomes a weapon for the enemy. Why? Because it will destroy you. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it up close as a former athlete, as a businessman around a bunch of people who are first time millionaires. I've watched it. I've watched it happen with um, people who win the lottery, but I've personally watched it with athletes. Never had money, finally get money and it destroys. The other part of it is, if you don't have a true mindset, if we haven't truly educated ourselves, if we haven't truly empowered ourselves, if we haven't truly gotten to a point to where we are doing exactly what we need to be as a unit, meaning that that is something that actually starts with the inculcation of true values, black values, interests, and principles into our young children. That's why the family is so important. You understand how this thing is interconnected? See, the black family is the institution through which value, our values, interests, and principles are implicated into the minds of our progeny, our offspring, at a level and intensity in which it is ingrained in them. So by the time they reach an age in which they're being bombarded with the external lies about who they are, they can withstand it. When they are being tempted to go out and be a full-time consumer without having any understanding of the importance of investing, they can withstand it. When they finally develop and build and they have resources, they don't blow it. I tell people all the time, it's an uphill battle talking black group economics when 25 and 30, 40 and 50 years old. Why? You're talking about somebody that literally grew up as a consumer and believing that the way that you justify your value on this planet is by showing people how much you can buy not how much you can own two different things see most of what you buy depreciates in values if you don't know how to invest if you don't know how to reduce liabilities increase assets what happens you send up and you end up in debt and you never can see debt is the number one enemy to wealth you talk about wealth building but if you don't understand the principles of wealth i know a bunch of people who are rich I know a few people who are wealthy. What's the difference? Rich people can buy a whole bunch of stuff and they can show you and they can look. The difference between the rich people, or the, the primary difference between rich people and wealthy people, rich people can go broke again. Wealthy people can't go broke. Their assets are so heavy that it would take something absolutely catastrophic and unpredictable and unlikely to ever put them in a place where they'll go broke. And then because of how they think, they'll still get it back. Whereas a person that's rich may have run into a situation that provides them a lot of money over a certain period of time, athletes. 75% of professional athletes in the NFL are broke within three years of retiring, 75%. 72% of NBA players are broke within three years of retiring because you don't have the right mindset. 
So again, if I'm taking this money and I'm giving it to a family that has not been adequately educated, adequately pre uh, prepared, ad adequately covered, it, it, it's simply another weapon that will be used for them to destroy themselves, to create internal conflict, to create devices that they can now have access to that they don't know how to ham handle. You've got to, uh, while y'all at it, look, we're, you know, we're doing everything that we do. You know about Black Man League, you know about Restoring Ghetto's Forgotten Daughter, you know about the work we're doing uh, right now with personal intervention with young Black men. Uh, show some love and support the organization. Not moving on. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep that in the chat as long as we're here. But look, again, back to Samaria Rice. I'm I'm not impressed with the eloquence of speech. That's a skill developed over time. And I think that we can get caught up in it and we can give credence to it. And even when people are paying attention to what I do, when I'm speaking on stage, when I'm speaking at organizations, when I'm speaking on videos, um, I want you to pay attention to the facts. I want you to check my work. I want you to try to understand the dynamics of the message being delivered more than how it's being delivered. I've been doing what I've been doing for years so yes, I have become somewhat uh, astute at doing it. But if it doesn't have value, if it doesn't have accuracy, if it can't be, if it doesn't have credibility, if it can't be depended upon to be researched and backed, if I can't be open to criticism and someone correcting me, then it's for nothing. What I don't want to happen to this young lady is for people to be judging her on her presentation instead of her purpose. I don't want people to look at her and then see her come up against these polished speakers and uh, theatricians and, 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 and watch them systematically tear her down and do what they did to Mike Brown Sr. This isn't about money to her. This is about a passion and an emptiness that she will never ever feel. He's never coming back. She outlived her baby and he's never coming back. This is personal for her. And when she sees people using the blood of black men for personal gain, you gotta think, without Mike Brown, now don't get me wrong, from what I, from the research I've done on Tamika Mallory, her, her thing is she's been doing some form of activism as long as can, you can look back. This She didn't just jump up, but she definitely capitalized. If it weren't for Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and all that stuff that this movement was truly built off of, starting with Mike Brown, we're not looking at Tamika Mallory on a freaking runway at the Grammys talking about her interests and passions. That's not happening. But the interests and passions aren't about the things that you built your foundation and your platform on. 
My thing is we've got to educate ourselves. We've got to inform ourselves. We've got to take the necessary time to really and truly gain an understanding of what we're dealing with. They put so many false prop ups in front of us. We're so thirsty for power that we take the first black face in a high place and we jump on it. They threw Barack Obama at us and we ate him up for eight years and he gave us Jack. We have got to understand that, you know, my, my grandfather, my great grandfather who reared me, my adopted father was my grandmother's father, my great grandfather. And he had a second grade education, but he used to always tell me, boy, be careful. All skin folk ain't can folk. And I've said for years, I was talking to my friend who I first said this to, I was talking to him yesterday. And we kind of laughed about it. But I remember when I first said this to him about eight years ago, we were on the phone and we were talking and he asked me why, you know, what I thought about, um, I forget who it was. It was somebody that everybody was holding up and I, I knew they weren't about anything. I can't remember which one, it was so many. And anyway, he asked me about a person. I said, man, let me tell you something. The most dangerous weapon or the most dangerous thing to black progress is a black person with a white agenda. Now, some of them know they work in white agendas and some of them don't. Some of them are being used and they will be discarded uh, and destroyed like Amarosa, like Stacey Dash, like so many others, once we get you to say what we want you to say, Candace Owens, her time is coming. She's starting to catch a little hell now and she's acting like she doesn't know where it comes from. No, racism doesn't exist, sister. You, you swore upon it, even though you literally got your spot in the limelight from a, a case you filed about racism. It kills me how the platform changes based on how I can best benefit myself. When it started out as a, probably as a real true look, we're gonna do something. And then you get up there and you start, man, I can play this game. That's how they've gotten so many of us. That's why I don't trust politicians. You can go in there with all the right intentions, but when you get in there and say how the game played and you realize you don't wanna lose this power, you start playing the game to win. You start playing the game to stay in place. You start playing the game the only way the game can be played. And that doesn't serve the people who need you the most, the people who actually sent you there. The thing is, we need to continue to demand transparency from Black, Black Lives Matter. It's that simple. We need to continue to demand transparency. We need to sit up and put them on on blast. We need to put them on front street. We need to stand behind Samaria. Uh, man, she talked about she talked about being Crump, Tamika Mallory, Lee Merritt. Uh, she, you know, she said. And then she said, I'm, I'm going to read directly what she said. Again, this is her words, and I'm going to read them exactly as she wrote them. She said, "Y'all have literally fucked up." Our fucked our fight up. I hope not another family soul uses y'all to represent them. 
Y'all might as well be junior pig cops. Now, while it sounds rudimentary, it's profound. She's read them. She's literally read them. She knows who they are. She's seen through them. She's saying that you are literally operating and working for them while pretending to be for us. It isn't about what you're making it about. And you're giving off an image that they are doing something for us that they're not doing. And I would argue, and, and something Neota, a point that Neota made to me, and I can say this because it wasn't a private conversation, it's actually over social media. She doesn't believe that Lee Merritt has to work for those numbers. Like he's not doing anything that any attorney couldn't do to get those settlements. She believes that the city is literally coming to him and saying, hey, this is what we're going to give you, but this is what we need from you. Then at the right time, he says, we've, we've reached a settlement. It's not any leverage or threat that he's putting out there that makes that the city knows at a certain point. You can look at the response of the public and you can look at public opinion. And trust me, when you understand how the media works like I do, you understand that they're actually paying people to take polls to find out where the people are on any given topic, especially any heated topic. They know where the, where the public is lying and they know when they need to spend something. So they sit up and say, man, we're going to have to put some money on this. What do you think we can give? Hell, with the with, with the force that the city and the world got hit with, with George Floyd, you couldn't come with the same $5 million that every other family's gotten. Why? Because this is global now. The world needs to see that we are serious about uh, looking out for black families. No, you're not. You're paying for a mess up because you know there's a greater mess up. If I'm giving you something on a settlement, that's because I believe that if it ever actually went to trial and we got to dispose people and we got to get testimony on record, oh, it would be a problem. So you don't get it. When I do a settlement, I literally get out of putting things on public record. Learn how the game has been played. And so I said all that to say this. We owe it to ourselves to be more informed. We owe it to ourselves to be more engaged. We owe it to ourselves to have a complete understanding and perspicacity of how we're being handled. We know we're being handled, but we need to understand how. We need to understand their systems, their machinations, how they move, how they think, how they operate, what they do to counter what we do. We can't be so emotionally driven that we don't think. We need to have think tanks. I've said that so many times. I feel like a recording. We've got to have think tanks. They have over 1,300 think tanks that deal with almost every possible scenario, and they know 15 years ahead of time, what they're going to do about a particular topic when it when it does finally pop up. We've got one or two. We've got the Harvest Institute by Dr. Clark Anderson and a couple of other small things popped out. We need to have minds. We Our minds are too exceptional and extraordinary not to have them in and literally thinking out and doing and putting numbers together and putting ideas together and looking at, okay, we, I was talking to a, a couple of young brothers on, what's today? Tuesday, yesterday, yesterday morning about how to counter gentrification. I can tell you this, you're not going to counter gentrification by complaining about it. You're not going to counter gentrification by doing interviews. 
So how do you counter gentrification? It's a multifaceted approach. You're going to have to educate people about home ownership. You're going to educate people about properly investing. You're going to have to educate people about being business owners, not just in your community, because there's only so many businesses that can serve a community. You're going to need business on outside the community. Why? Because the way you stop gentrification is by empowering and growing and preparing and restoring your own community. But when you do that, the property values go up. One of the ways that gentrification works is you buy out those who are willing to sell out. Then you price out those who are left. If I can't afford my tax, my, my, my homeowner's tax, eventually my property will be taken from me and I get nothing for it. For it. So then you've got to deal with that element or component of it. You've got to understand how it works. You've got to understand and prepare people for it. This has got to be a long-term uh, process in which we say, okay, we've got to preserve. Why? Because serial force displacement comes at a price. And gentrification is just one form of serial force displacement. It, it, it's a mental health issue. It's a general health issue. It's an economic issue. It's a political issue. It's an academic and educational issue. All of these things are coming out. It's not simply gentrification. You, you don't have your home anymore. What's the ramifications of it? We don't think, we don't look beyond. That's the thing that we've got to be aware of. I've written an entire academic paper on serial force displacement. What happens? The aid epidemic got out of control of the black community because of serial force displacement. Nobody's even thought about how it happened. I lay it out in, in, in my paper. <laughs> These people have been handling us from day one and we don't know how to respond. That's why we got to put our minds together. We cannot allow them to consistently put up people and prop up people in front of us who look like us and we ride them until they destroy us. We are going to have to truly become aware. We're gonna have to stop being so emotive and start being calculative. On that note, look, I'm going to get off here. You guys are unbelievable. I thank you for stopping by. Uh, I really and truly consider it an honor to be able to share with you guys on a consistent basis. You truly inspire me because I know what some of the comments that I get in these chats, some of the responses I get to the videos that I record and upload tells me my people are further along than most people are aware of, but we've got a lot of work still to do. That's what I'm coming. That's, that's what I'm challenging you to do uh, is to empower yourself, enlighten yourself, look beyond the moment, stop being a victim, stop. Yes, it's happening, but we are never going to win by proving something what someone done has done to us. We're gonna win by being able to overcome it. It's that simple. On that note, I'm gonna get out of here. You guys have an unbelievable day. Don't forget to support the work we're doing. Uh, I just added it one more time. I'm about to check out of here. Uh, you guys have an unbelievable day and we'll talk soon.